1: Um, I mean, some of you may be wondering why uh, I've done a, a few shows um, talking or related to, in any case, the Malibu fires, because I have been personally experiencing them. Um, and today, I have a story, um, a guest with a story, who, who uh, actually experienced a fire herself in 1993, the Pasadena, California fire, and she wrote a memoir about her adventures after the fire. This is now the 20th anniversary of the memoir, and the memoir is called Roads from the Ashes, an Odyssey in Real Life on the Virtual Frontier, and we'll find out what all that means in a little bit. Um, but you know, regardless of whether you uh, have been in a fire, ever suffered a fire or not, so many of the things that I've talked about before and that I'm sure um, the lessons of making lemons, lemonade from lessons that you're going to hear about today from my guest really can um,
0: you can relate
1: to. Even if it's not a fire, but some other tragedy, some natural disaster, some personal disaster. I mean, it's all of a sudden when life hits you in the face, (laughs) smacks you in the face, and out of the blue. And what do you do about it? How do you not crumble? How do you start again? How do you not fall into the pit of despair and instead make something creative out of it? Uh, going on to a, a, new, a new life that you would have never experienced if this hadn't happened. Now, um, my house did not burn, did not go down in flames, I should say, um, but it did suffer and is still suffering smoke and ash damage and um, is in, unlivable at this point. So I have been out of my house, evacuated since November 8th, and uh, I now have to confront the whole, the whole process of, of making it livable again. Now, of course, I am filled with gratitude that my house was not one of the 400 in Malibu and the more than that in the campfire um, and others in the hill fire and all these other kinds of fires. Um, you know, Needless to say, I was on pins and needles for weeks until I was able to get reassurance from the fire engine uh, company near my house and from neighbors who managed to get back and and various sources um, that it was okay. But really it wasn't until I was able to get back myself weeks later to see my, for myself that it was still standing um, that I felt any sort of relief. You know, it was always so... Uh, such a double-edged sword to watch the fire on television, and the first week, it was pretty much, certainly the first several days, it was pretty much uh, 24-7, at least on the local news stations, and, um, but they showed the houses, you know, what makes better television, houses that are standing, or houses that are in flames, well, it's the latter, it's the ones that are in flames. So on the one hand, I wanted to see my house and get some reassurance that it was still there. And on the other hand, I didn't want to see it because I knew if, it was, if they were showing my house, chances are it would be in flames. So, um, And now the whole, re, you know, the whole process, I mean, there's no way I have gone back to my house um, a few times for very brief periods of time because, uh, you know, for my day job as an expert witness, there were a few things that I had to absolutely get done by deadlines. Um, and I went and sat with a mask after opening the windows and letting it air out for an hour. I went inside with a mask and sat at my computer and did the absolute, uh, you know, minimum that was necessary and then left the house with um, a burning nose and mouth and throat and headache and everything else. So there's no question but that the the smoke and the ash and the, um, you know, the residual because the fire came down to my backyard um, is still, makes it still unlivable. So now all the insurance stuff and the, the cleaning stuff and all the all the stuff that you don't want to have to deal with, but at the same time, you know she, you should be feeling grateful that you have it to deal with, and not and that there's nothing there. In any case, that's my story, <laughs> boring as it might be. That's my story. Let's get to my guest's story, which is a little more interesting. Her name is Megan Edward. The name of her book, as I said, is Rhodes from the ashes and odyssey in real life on the virtual frontier. So welcome to the show, Megan.
2: Thank you so much for having me. You brought back so many memories as you talk about the Malibu fire and all the other fires, and I'm so mm -hmm. sorry you have that journey back home and that you aren't there yet.
1: Yes. Uh, You know, I actually, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, when I was living in Calabasas, and you know there have been fires, tons of fire. You know, that's the thing in California. Uh, Pasadena, probably where you were living as well, the prettiest places to live in Southern California, or even Northern California, all over California, the prettiest places to live are the places where there's the most fire danger.
2: That's absolutely right. The canyons, the hillsides, the coastlines. Yes. Yes. All well, beautiful let's get your... and all so subject to it.
1: Yes. And you tell yourself, um, "Oh, it's not going to happen well anyhow i 'll tell you about the Calabasas fire later, but let 's get to your story. Um, tell us before the, Tell us who you were and who was living there and why, where, you, where you were born, how you got to where you were living in Pasadena, you know how your life brought you there, and then we 'll talk about your, the fire you had
2: Well, I was actually born in Illinois, near Chicago. Because my father was in the military, so we moved around a lot during my childhood. But Southern California was always home. It's where my grandparents lived. And and so we finally did come back there. And I went to high school there and, and stayed in that the San Gabriel Valley in that area, Pasadena. And I had married my husband a few years before this fire that took our home happened. And he had... Um, purchased a property in the hills above Pasadena that was historic. It belonged to Abbott Kinney, who is the man who developed Venice, California. He built the canals. And he had an orchard and and a house way up in the hills of Pasadena. And um, the property that my husband purchased was his livery stable. And he had turned that into an incredibly charming house in the hills uh, that overlooked Pasadena and Los Angeles and so it had been there for over a hundred years so we really were in the mindset of well it's been here a hundred years what could possibly Uh happen and also there were houses above us so you know we knew about the fires of course but um but we never of course like I think like everyone you never think it's going to happen to you until the day it did
1: (laughs) right and so, what were you? What kind of work were you and your husband doing before the fire?
2: My husband was a real estate broker and um, property manager. No wonder he
1: got you that great house.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was definitely part of the story. And he, um, in fact, he had just moved his all of his office to our house not very long before the fire. So, uh-huh. of all the people I knew who were wiped out by the fire, he probably was the most thoroughly. Wiped out because he had also been a firefighter in his, a wildland firefighter in his earlier years. And um, so when he, so his first thought the morning of the fire, it happened early in the morning, was to tell other people, get them out of their houses, do what he could to fight the fire and those kinds of things. So he he was left pretty much with a pair of shorts and a sooty t shirt and not even any shoes. No ID. He was just completely cleaned out. I, however, had been working for a real estate company in Pasadena, so I had a few things at that office, and, and we did both leave in our cars, so we had those, and our dog, so we, those were our belongings after the fire.
1: And um, so I just have one quick question about the house. We, they were livery stable. Did you have horses?
2: No, we did not. But um it was so but it was a livery stable type building that he had made into a a very charming house. Unique house, not the kind of house you can rebuild. So yes, I think that yes. probably contributed to our thoughts about, well what are we gonna do now? This isn't the sort of place you put back.
1: Yes. Yes, because of how historic it was. You can't really you can't duplicate that. So, um, well, when you say, so your husband was running around trying to help other people, what, tell them to get out of their house, but, I mean, so you and he didn't um, pack, didn't take valuables, like, did the fire come too quickly?
2: Yes, we really didn't have a chance to do much. Once we realized we had to leave, we had to leave. Um, it was very windy that day. This was um, October 27, 1993, and it was the perfect conditions for, for the kind of horrible fires that happened in Northern California this year, and well, in Southern California too, of course. The winds are such a factor, and the, and the dryness are, such, are two big factors. So when we saw those giant flames roaring toward us, there was really not, nothing left to do. but get in the car and leave. I did grab a few things, but nothing that made any sense afterwards. Again, I yeah. think that denial plays such a huge role when you're making decisions in in the heat of the yes. moment.
1: Yes, absolutely. When I came home on November 8th and um, you know, picked I mean, I had actually I had actually been that afternoon been doing an interview um, for a, a local television station about the Thousand Oaks um, killing, you know, the, the mass murder. And oh, yeah. um, when I, I was at the station, they, you know, they were in, my interview was delayed a bit because there were um, things, you know, breaking news about the fire, but the fire seemed far away, and I really didn't think, you know, I thought that's terrible, but I did not, not think at the time that this was going to be affecting me in any way. So um, then I got home and got the. Um, there was a message on the answering service, um, saying you have to evacuate now. The fire is imminent. Mm-hmm. Blah blah blah. So yes, you walk around the house and you think, well, I know I'm supposed to take photographs, <laughs> and um, and but you you walk around in a daze. At least I did because at the same time, uh, and you probably did this too in '93 because at the same time you think that. There, there's no. You're supposed to take things, but uh, this really is the fire. Isn't really going to get to your house, even though it's like imminent, and even if you see flames. Um, and back in those days, uh, and I was even feeling this now, but I would have. I was wrong to still think this way. But back, certainly in '93, that was when uh, in California there were fire engines that would that would go to your house and would protect your house, all the houses that were in danger, there would be a fire truck for each house. And so you don't really think that, you know, you kind of think, oh, well, I should take things because that's what you're supposed to do, but you don't really think you're going to need to in a way because the fire truck's going to be coming and protect your house. Did fire trucks come to your house?
2: Well, there were many, again, the speed that the fire moved with was so just stunning that... um, fire trucks really weren't there until much later. And also they predicted that the fire would move in a different direction. So they did have a lot of fire trucks staged but not in the right place. So, mm. so there was just a, a lot of um, um, I don't know what you, want, what you would call it. Not disinformation. It was just a lack of information about where things were happening and who needed help. In addition, there was no water pressure um, up on the hills by the time mm. fire trucks got there. So It just was one thing after another, and the fire moving very quickly. So the main thing in the morning, it was very early in the morning, and people were still asleep. So our thought Uh. was we need to tell people and and make sure everybody got out. And everyone in our neighborhood did get out. So that was a good thing. But then just down the street, you know, I remember when I was leaving, I told a a woman who had just come out of her house to pick up her newspaper this was back when we still got newspapers delivered to our houses. And um, she had just stepped out to pick up her newspaper. And I told her, you know, the fire's really close and it's coming this way. And she didn't really believe me. Huh. It was because there was no smoke. That was the other strange thing. At that point, it was still clear. There were flames, but, but no smoke yet. So all too soon, I'm sure she realized I wasn't kidding. But, um, but it just was so sudden and unexpected, really, because uh, this fire was started by a man who, unintentionally, by a man who was cold in the mountains, a homeless man who had spent the night in the mountains and built a little fire to keep himself warm, and then the fire got away from him. So there was just nothing to predict it or warn anybody, and then again, it was very early in the morning. Hmm.
1: Wow. Um, Now, did that fire go... I don't really remember. Did that fire... I mean, I, did, how far did that fire go?
2: Well, it, it burned all the way across the hills above Pasadena, and Alt, well, they called it the Altadena Fire, but it was really unincorporated Pasadena that it burned. And then it burned toward the town of Sierra Madre, which is right next to Pasadena, but it never got there. The the wind shifted made it go into the mountains rather than down, on, down into more housing developments. And also the firefighters by then were very well organized. This was a couple of days later, um, I guess a day and a half later. They were able to sort of beat it back and, and get it yeah. to an area where it wasn't burning houses. At the same time, um, Laguna was burning and other fires were burning in, in the Los Angeles I'm, area as well. Well, I'm
1: wondering yeah. if that was when it's also that was there was a Kalimansis There was a Malibu fire out. as
2: well. So there yeah, were many Malibu, fires right. um, attracting our attention at the time.
1: Well that's right. And of course whenever that happens and then that um that divides the resources even more, the the fire firefighters and fire trucks and all of that. You never want <laughs> there to be fires in other places when you're having a fire in your place. Um, Absolutely, and, and this so year
2: was such an, an example of that. They were amazing in what they were able to accomplish.
1: And so, so and, it, and it was in these other places, for, obviously it started for other reasons in these various other places. It couldn't have been men homeless men with campfires in all of these different places
2: um, do you no remember that was the what? story of, of that one fire, uh, I mean there's so many things that can start a fire it just doesn't take much when the conditions are perfect for it right. to bloom right. into a giant conflagration so anything from a tossed obviously a tossed cigarette to a lightning strike to um, a lot of them are caused by cars that throw a spark as they hit a curb or something like that just, now it's it's but I have to say, it's, it's usually human involvement that gets the fire started. There are lightning mm-hmm. strikes. A lot of them are, whether or not it's intentional, caused by people.
1: Yes, yes. Um, what I want to, I, when we come back, uh, we need to take a break. But when we come back, I want you to take us from that moment from there you are, you and your husband and your dog fleeing from the house. And, you know, take us from there, what you did next, how your, you know, how your thinking was, um, and how you did, and of course, uh, um, spoiler alert, obviously, um, she has managed to um, survive and in a uh, perhaps even, presumably, even a better way than if this hadn't happened. But I'll let you go into all of those kinds of details. So stay tuned. Um, My guest is Megan Edward. Her book is called Roads from the Ashes, An Odyssey in Real Life on the Virtual Frontier. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, bringing you a, a wildfire survival story today um, from my guest, Megan Edward. Um, her book is called Roads from the Ashes, An Odyssey in Real Life on the Virtual Frontier. This is the story of her experience uh, of survival. From the 1993 Pasadena fire, or as she was saying, uh, it was technically called the Altadena fire. Uh, and so, let's. And I asked her during the break if she could talk about or include um, what she thinks. Think, what she thinks gave her the strength to survive in the manner that she did, making lemonade from lemons, and because of. Because I was mentioning to her that um, in Malibu, um, where I am, there are people, of course, if they lost their home, as um, um, as my guest did, Megan did, but also even if they are like I am with um, ash and smoke damage and so unable to return home, there are so many people walking around in a fog, um, just feeling overwhelmed with how to how to get out of it, how to either rebuild their home or how to get it clean from the toxins or what to do and so um, so a lot of this has to do with who you are before the fire starts and um, what resources you have you know digging down deep into yourself as to how you are able to survive, not just physically survive, but, um, you know, able to constitute a new and hopefully better life for yourself. So, Megan, tell us how you did that. <laughs> you know, starting back from you and your husband and your dog fleeing from the fire in Pasadena.
2: Well, I had just turned 40 right around the time, this ha- a few months before this happened. So I think that's significant to the story because that's kind of a very midlife point. And one of the things I had always wanted to do was to be a writer. And I had only weeks before the fire landed my first paid writing gig. I was writing a column for a a weekly newspaper in Pasadena. So this was very exciting to me because it was professional writing, which which is what I wanted to do. I mean, I actually did write professionally for uh, the real estate company that I worked for, but that's not what I had in mind. I wanted to have my own creative voice. What was your column? It was a column for the, the Pasadena Weekly newspaper, and it was ad- actually advice for singles—how to get out there, huh. where to go, find interesting things to do, and that kind of thing. This was back in the day even when though, newspapers wanted to have columns that attracted that people point. to their um, ads. So,
1: yes, that section. Yes,
2: but
1: you, but you were married at that point. But you knew what but you knew. What I you was. had gone through.
2: But I, I talked to people who weren't so. It was still a uh-huh. uh, column for single people. Uh-huh, okay. So, so go ahead. So I, I actually had a deadline for, it was my second column right after the fire. And I'm, I am still, the publisher of the newspaper to this day is still amazed that I didn't miss that deadline. That's how important it was to me. Had to make that yeah. deadline, even yeah. if my house had just burned down. So that was what was going on with us. And um, I remember the day we went back to the, to really find out for sure if our house had burned. The day after the fire, we had to ride up in a police van um, to get up into the area where our house had been because uh, no cars were being allowed back. And so we still weren't entirely positive that it was gone. But we rounded the corner and there was the big gaping hole where our house had been. Uh, and so we got out and walked through the embers and ashes and trees were still smoking and a, f- a flame would burst out every once in a while. So it was still very hot. But the thing that one of the things we noticed first was that we could see all the way to Catalina Island. And before the fire, there had been trees. So we mm-hmm. didn't have that view. And <laughs> yeah. that has kind of remained uh, a metaphor for me even then, I noticed, I thought, well, you know, there's a vacuum there, but look at that view and huh. think about the possibilities that this offers, not just the loss, which of course dominates your thinking and, and is, is the most um, shocking thing, but, but there was that view. And then as, as time has passed, I've looked back on that and thought to myself, too, that, that nature really abhors a vacuum. And now, if I go back and visit the spot where our house was, those trees have all grown back.
1: Hmm. So
2: that view is not there. But it was there briefly. And, and the same was true in our lives. We, we had an opportunity, as long as we chose to see it as one, that we didn't have any stuff. And that made certain things possible that never were possible before. And that's Light. the opportunity, opportunity that we ended up seizing Was let's do something different since we don't even have any stuff to even need to to rent a storage locker. Hmm. So we ended up hitting the road. Did you wait
1: a minute? Did did you uh, find yourselves walking through the ashes and looking, trying to find
2: remains of anything? We did, and there were a few. There was nothing worth keeping. Um. One bizarre thing was there was one uh, untouched item that I discovered in our living room, and it was a really ugly vase that had been left over from a white elephant holiday party.
1: <laughs>
2: and why this ceramic vase that had been on a shelf, I don't even know how it survived because now it was down on, on the floor um, or the remains of the floor, um, but it was untouched as though the fire was saying, you know, sorry, <laughs> I'm not taking that. And so that was the one, so no one wanted that. And then we found relics, like quarters. We, we'd had a, a, a change in a bowl, and there were some quarters that had puffed up because of the, um, the heat. And so they were like little inflated metal balls. Not quite cool. balls, but puffed up. So those are sort of interesting, and I still have those. And then, mm-hmm. sadly, I mean, I had my grandmother's piano, and so parts of that were still visible. But most of the things were just gone. Things I would have thought might survive were just gone. It was hot, fast, and completely devastating.
1: So did you break down in sobs?
2: Neither of us did. It doesn't mean we weren't sad. I think that we were just kind of beyond. Yeah. It was still, and, and still, I think even then, there's denial at work. You can't quite believe it's really happening. So the sadness came later for me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So and I can't what? say that so the shock did you... didn't last a really long time because it just does. It's something that I think stays with you. It will stay with anyone this has happened to forever.
1: Uh-huh. So then what happened? When did you, I mean, you looked at each other on this spot when you saw what, what was and wasn't there. And, and then what?
2: Well, I did have the idea pretty quickly that we could um, seize the advantage to do something different, at least for a while. And so my idea was that perhaps we could hit the road, and and the idea was to get a recreational vehicle of some sort, hit the road for a few months until we sort of figured out what we would do next. But it was a, you know, we both pretty much quickly saw that it was an opportunity to um, perhaps head in a new direction or to see, see where, what we might learn if we went and traveled for a while and let our, let our heads clear and, and think about that. So, yeah. But we did think that it would be um, six months, perhaps, and I think we both thought we would come back to Southern California. We never dreamed that we were setting out on a journey that ended up lasting almost seven years, and we certainly never dreamed we would end up in Las Vegas, Nevada, which is where we live oh. now.
1: Okay, so how did that happen and how did you support yourselves during these seven years?
2: Well, one of the things that um, we were determined to do was to work while we traveled if we could. So we did have some savings that we could use to travel for a while, but we knew we would have to find some other solutions to supporting ourselves if we wanted to stay on the road. And um, sometimes when you make up your mind to do something, then opportunities come your way and, yeah. and those kinds of things did happen to us. And we also happened to be hitting the road, and at the time we didn't know this, um, hitting the road at the time when the Internet was just becoming universally available and people were seeing the possibilities and learning how to use it. So when we left town, that, was, that amounted to we had email. But two years later, we started a website, and that became part of our... Um, our new career we started a website called roadtripamerica.com and giving advice to people who wanted to travel around anywhere in north america by car or by um rv and and that continues to this day we still have that website
1: huh and how did you monetize that or didn't you
2: we did. Um, it's, it's mostly through advertising, and then we had sponsors. We also spent one year um, as spokespeople for the American Cancer Society and the makers of Nicorette gum. When they were uh, promoting smoking cessation uh, all over the country, we drove um, a promotional recreational vehicle and took it to all of the events and, and appeared as spokespeople for, for that project for a year, so that was quite... Quite an experience um, teaching that, people how to that, quit smoking. How did that come into?
1: How did that come into your life? I mean, how did how did that
2: opportunity? Um, how, how did that, that um, opportunity arise? Well, yes. we had our website, and that that put us in touch with people all over the country, and then of course all over the world because that's how the internet works. And one of the things that we learned early on was that people in remote areas were much quicker to. Uh, seize the opportunities that the, that the Internet offered because they, were, they felt cut off. And yeah. people in big cities were a little slower to um, adopt the new things and see the potential because they didn't really need them as, as much. Yeah. So that was a very fascinating thing to be watching as we drove around the country all those years to see how the, the Internet and the Web rolled out. In, in uh-huh. different ways and for different people, and and it did give it people. We've got opportunities that way, in the same way that the web provides them to people now, puts people in touch in ways that they couldn't have been before.
1: Well, was it that the um, the the cancer? It was. You said the American Cancer Society. Yes. Was it the American? Was it that the American Cancer Society in Nicaragua uh, saw your website and realized you were traveling around the United States and that would be a good opportunity for their campaign, or did you?
2: Contact it was a little bit them? like that. I mean, yeah. it was we knew people who were connected. You know, it was one person led to another. But um, uh-huh. the 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 two. Um, organizations, the, the makers of Nicorette, and the American Cancer Society were looking for a, a couple or a person to drive this recreational vehicle that they had. It was called the Uh-oh. NICO van. So it, it had all sorts <laughs> of graphics all over it. And um, it was funny because we really had to be completely available 24 hours a day because when people want to quit smoking, they want to knock on your door and get some information <laughs> and coupons. And so we had them. And we did that for a year, but um, it was one person led to another that, that hooked us up with the opportunity to, to drive that vehicle. We were at the Rose Parade one year. That was at the end of that year.
1: Oh, that sounds cool. Now, in the meantime, were you while you w- once you left, you know, in your own uh, RV when you started your travels, um, thinking that it was only going to be six or seven months? Did you had you um, gotten your insurance company, fire insurance company, to uh, start paying for rebuilding your home?
2: Oh, the insurance is so complicated, and, and that is so much what faces people now after, the, after these fires. It's yes. so complicated. And, um, and people have different kinds of policies, so you have to figure out how all of it works. And we, were, we did pretty quickly receive money for our personal belongings that had been in the house. But but the um, value, the, but the insurance tied to the house itself took much longer to reconcile, and in, in fact, years, because it's set up to replace what you lost, and and we didn't. There was no way we could put back what had been lost, and we didn't. We were. We found ourselves no longer interested in putting a house back on that same lot. So it took a long time to figure that all out, and um, in fact. Years later, after we decided we wanted to put down roots again, we um, bought a house in Las Vegas.
1: So did, Eddie, did you sell the land that your house was on in Pasadena? Yes. yes. And how long, after you, how long after the fire did you do that?
2: Wow, that's a good question. It was a few years. Not, not a so, huge long time, but a few years.
1: So in the meantime, you hadn't started rebuilding.
2: That's right. Most of our neighbors had and, and, and did that pretty quickly, but, but we did not.
1: Because you were having too much fun on the road.
2: Well, we just decided that, that rebuilding there was, um, it was, a, it's a, was a unique hillside lot, and, and as I say, the structures on it were not replaceable. So that would have been a giant project to take that lot and, and to develop into what its potential was because it was beautiful. Yeah. But um, it also had a, a, what had been a reservoir on the original property back in the day um, to water all the trees and an orchard that had been up there, too. So there, so there was essentially a lake on the property, too, a small lake. Uh-huh. So all of this figured into the challenges of rebuilding on that particular plot of land. And it wasn't mm-hmm. something that we wanted to do. So it just was a matter of time before we figured out what we did want to do.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I, I would imagine it would be hard for you or your husband to do, you know, in terms of working on the road, to do what you had been doing, real estate, or did you find
2: opportunities for that? I mean, since you were traveling... Not for real estate so much, although I did continue writing. And um, one of the things we made sure we had was the, um, an office in the, the motorhome that we had built for us that we hit the road in, had, a, had an office in the back instead of a bedroom. And mm-hmm. nowadays, you can find RVs that are set up to be to help you work on the road. But back then, they really were recreational vehicles, and, no, and people thought we were a little bit nuts to want to be able to work. because. But now, of course, with cell service and, and Wi-Fi and all these things that are available to us so many places, um, it makes perfect sense to work on the road. But back then, it really didn't. Didn't make sense. All we had was email, and we only had that if we had a phone line.
1: Mm. Oh well. Wow. So, so what would be the typical kinds of things that you would be doing?
2: Well, at first we traveled. We went coast to coast, and we went north to south, and we went we went into Canada a lot. We didn't go into Mexico, but we did do the. We covered the all of the United States and many of the southern Canadian provinces. So we did uh-huh. that, and then once we started roadtripamerica.com, we were posting articles and stories at, for a whole year. We did them daily, and then later we had other contributors and other ways of posting things, and it evolved from there.
1: Wow, that's um, – <laughs> this all sounds fabulous. Um, well, and, and we, do, we do need to have another break, but um, maybe when we come back you can tell us about – like, did you ever work – Outside of, the, of your RV, in other words, did you stop in a town for long enough to have a, a regular job
2: for a couple of months? We didn't have regular jobs, but we often did short gigs, like uh-huh. um, we um, sold things at a, at a fair in Maine one winter, and things like that, and, uh-huh. and sometimes we would help people do things for a while. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, we'll talk more way.
1: about that. Well, when we come back, um, again, my guest is Megan Edward. Her book is called Roads from the Ashes, and you can kind of get this now, and Odyssey in Real Life on the Virtual Frontier. And now, now this is all becoming clear, right, because it was the frontier of the Internet and you were in real life. So stay yes. tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We'll be right back.
0: If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I want to get back to my guest and her wildfire survival story. It is a wild story. (laughs) My guest is Megan Edward. Um... I, just to clarify, for any of you who were wondering this too, I was asking Megan during the break. Um, she did sleep. They did have an office, as she was saying, in the RV, but there was also room to sleep. So, so the whole thing was self-contained. Um, so, I, I started to ask you how. Well, first of all, how this 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 was seven years. How this impacted your relationship over this time. I mean, so for a lot of people being in such close quarters and after such a trauma, that would be difficult.
2: One of the, I, I should mention first, too, that one of the things I noticed after the fire is that among our neighbors, some of them immediately split up, some couples immediately split up. And I don't know all the stories there, but it was as though their house had been the thing holding them together. Mm -hmm. So it's Mm. interesting to me that my husband and I never looked at each other and said, hey, this is an opportunity for us to split up. It Uh never crossed our minds. We only thought about it later, that it didn't (laughs) dawn on us that we wouldn't stay together. Of course we would stay together. Uh Uh Now, Uh when we did move into what amounted to about 300 square feet, there were challenges to that. We really did have to learn how to be sort of alone only in that small space. It, it yes. did help that we drove around in it. It wasn't parked in one place the whole time, so we had mm-hmm. our view out the window was different every day. But, um, but that still is a very small space, and it did take some learning, and I, it wasn't all easy. We had our moments, And we, we actually spent some time apart that first year.
1: How did you do but that? Not too much, but some I mean, but would he be in a during the day but came back at night? Or did no, you I actually
2: stayed with a friend in Canada for a while.
1: Hmm. And,
2: and my husband stayed in the RV. But then, uh-huh. you know, we got back together and, and we did figure it out. And um, it was interesting when we finally did move into a normal-sized house, we realized that our walk-in closet in our bedroom was about the same size as as the space we had been living in for the past six or seven years. So um, that was a very interesting thing to think about. And it took us quite a while to acquire furniture to fill this new normal-sized house up because Mm -hmm. we just weren't used to it anymore.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So... um so so, how did, so then what? How did you decide, like, you know, each day did you wake up in the morning and, and have a, uh, a meeting and say, so today we're going to stay here, or today we're going to travel to such and such a place? How did you decide from day to day what you were going to do?
2: Well, usually we would have an idea of where we were headed, and oftentimes, um, especially after we started our website, that kind of dictated where we went, because readers would write and say, why don't you go here, or come visit oh. us. Kind of a thing, and then we would go there. So, um, and it was pretty lovely to have the freedom to do that. I, I look back on it and I just feel very blessed that, that that happened to us. And it is one of the things you can look at something as horrible as a fire and then realize that I got something I never expected and never dreamed, wouldn't have planned for myself. And there it was, this lovely gift that came as a result.
1: Mm-hmm. So um,
2: we, would, we often knew where we were headed or about how long we would stay in a place. And so that just kind of unfolded naturally. But, yes, we would talk it over and decide what we were going to do. And we would uh-huh. often, several times, we went back to California to see family and friends.
1: Uh-huh. And so then how did it come about that you... Um that you decided to put down, to actually buy a house, and, and how did
2: you decide to make it Nevada? Now, that was an unexpected thing. Um, I, I did continue writing all this time, and I, so I had a couple of columns and papers and some magazine articles and this and that. And, and then I wrote my memoir, Roads from the Ashes, and it came out in 1999. And as soon as it was published, or as soon as I finished writing it, really, I thought to myself, I'd really like to start writing to try my hand at fiction. Because, you know, I I had just written a memoir, which is nonfiction, and I thought it would be awfully fun to just make things up. So I had an idea for a story, and the main character absolutely had to be from Las Vegas for purposes for the plot to work out. Uh So I said to my husband, um, neither one of us were really drawn to Las Vegas, or, you know, we'd been here, of course, plenty of times, or driven through plenty of times, but, um, but the idea of spending time here had not really occurred to us, and it wasn't high on our list of things to do, but because yeah. I, I, as I wrote, I realized I was just using stereotypes to, to craft my character, and I thought, this is just never going to work. I need to go learn a little bit more about, about the city, and, and what, peop- what it's like to actually live there, as opposed to just be a tourist there. So we came to Las Vegas, and we parked our RV on Boulder Highway in an RV park there, and I bought a bus pass, and I started riding around to the ends of all the bus lines to see what the city was like, and I think sometimes when you look more closely at a place, it kind of beguiles you, or at least that's what happened with Las Vegas, and it happened to both of us. It was not what we expected. We didn't know anything about it when we came, and we ended up thinking, this is actually a wonderful place and we want to live here. And huh. we hadn't really thought that this was when our, where our trip would end. But, um, but when, once that thought occurred to us, it was like, okay, maybe this is where we buy a house. And, and that's what happened. And that was now, that was the end of 1999. And here we still are. And sometimes huh. I think it's because Las Vegas is a city that's constantly in motion that it yeah. sort of, replaced our travels with swirling around us.
1: Uh-huh. So it's
2: like a whole different part of the world is here every day.
1: Yes. And so, and what happened, did you finish your novel?
2: Interestingly, I, di- I did finish it, and I got an agent, and, and it, but it didn't sell. So I put it on the shelf, and I started writing other things, and, and some of my other novels have been published, and I finally pulled that one back out, and I'm going to finish it, and it's going to come out in 2021. Oh, cool. So, long, so that's got a, live, a long arc um, for that story.
1: <laughs> do you live in the, near the Strip, or do you live in a more rural kind of place?
2: We don't live far from the Strip. We like being able to get everywhere we want to go quickly, and Las Vegas is a large city now with 2.5 million people in the whole metro area, but um, but compared to Los Angeles, it's rather, which is what we were used to, it's um, kind of medium-sized, and it's very easy to, yeah. from where we live, we can be on the Strip or downtown or in the, the more rural areas all within 20 or 30 minutes.
1: Uh-huh. And what about your husband? What, is, what has he been doing since he's got a house in Las Vegas?
2: Well, we still run RoadtripAmerica.com, and we also have a site about uh, Las Vegas, and now we have other websites as well. And uh, he is also now a book publisher. So he's a huh. web and print publisher. Huh. So that keeps us both pretty busy.
1: Oh, that, that, that's amazing. And of course, none of this would have happened if your house hadn't burned down.
2: Ab, it absolutely would not have. It, it is all the result of that. But um, one of the reasons I love that, make, if, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the reasons I think it resonates with people or that it stays and, it, and it's such a good metaphor is if life gives you lemons, the lemons are just going to sit there unless you kind of... Say, hey, I want to make lemonade out of you, and you cut them yeah. up, and you add sugar and water, and you actually make lemonade. They they aren't right. going to do that on their own, but they do offer you that opportunity. But you do have to take steps.
1: So, what do you think? Um, it. What do you think was different? And and it's true. You know, I, I'm sure I, I've been thinking this and expecting this. I mean, you know, when people. Forget about regardless of fires, aside from fires, when a couple sets about building or uh, a home or um, making major repairs or alterations in a home, it often ends in divorce. Um, and so I have been thinking about how that's going to be happening with the Malibu fire, and you know, presumably, lots of fires where um, mm-hmm. it causes people to have to rebuild their home. If, well, I mean, to not have to, but if that's what they choose to do. And so, yes, they will bring. It'll bring up the same kinds of things that happens um, in general when couples do that. So, um, so what do you think, though? Aside from those kinds of issues, what do you think it was? inside of you from your life before the fire that made you more resilient, made you you and your husband more creative in terms of taking this risk um, of, you know, doing something? I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of friends who thought you were crazy um, you know, getting an RV and traveling America. So what do you think it was from your past, because everything comes from our childhood, <laughs> FYI, um, and, and years after that, what do you think it was that gave you the strength to to do this?
2: One of the things my husband and I share that I think is important is we, we have a, a similar um, level of tolerance of risk. I think uh-huh. that's, that's just really important. I think we're about equal on in what we can take. And so that that served us well over the years, because we certainly, this whole thing did require a tolerance of a certain amount of risk, because who knew how this was going to work out? And yes, people did think we were crazy. And maybe, and and we kind of are. I mean, it wasn't a totally rational thing to do. And some of it, it, I think of the, the lack of rationality did come from being shocked, uh-huh. And, and the result of, of having that fire happen and take everything that we had away. The, we did act some, on the basis of shock, and, and that may not be the best time to make big decisions, but that's where we were, and that's when we had to make them. But um, I think that my um, desire to write had something to do with it, and my husband's love of creativity and, and trying things and wanting to try new things, all of that played into it. And perhaps our age. I mean, we'd both, we were 40, you know, we wanted, it was, was kind of like, is this all life has to offer? Here's our, ch- you know, a, a midlife crisis thing almost.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, because that was a pretty stable thing that you were doing. You had this beautiful home and um, and these, you know, um, jobs that you were, uh, careers, both of you, you know, in real estate, I mean, that, that's what what you would have presumably still done, if there had been a fire. I mean, you were on that I
2: path. have no doubt we would still be there doing those kinds of things. We, we had started one business selling toys and games at um, special events and county fairs and, and events like that. And um, that, that, the inventory for that all burned up in the fire, too. So we did do a little of that uh, while we were traveling.
1: Uh-huh.
2: But, well, um, you should but come to Malibu up, so. and give...
1: You should come to Malibu and, and maybe the campfire. Have you thought of um, going to Malibu or the campfire area or other places where there have been fires and giving
2: talks to people? Over the years, I have done that on occasion. And, um, and now, the web being what it is, um, my husband more than I, but both of us are involved in groups where people, talk, uh, Facebook groups mainly, where people um, who have lost, thing, lost everything in fires discuss things. And so we're involved in that way.
1: Well, okay, what is the... How can people... How do you want people to get in touch with you?
2: I'm on Facebook at um, Megan Edwards is the easiest way to find me and Twitter and Instagram and then I also have a website, MeganEdwards.com and And all of those links are actually on the website so that's probably the easiest place to start.
1: Okay, and that's where people can buy the book as well as all other kinds of places where books are sold. And again, the name of the book is called roads from the ashes and an odyssey in real life on the virtual frontier well megan edwards thank you so much for sharing your story it's such an uplifting story and um you know it's hard i think it's hard for a lot of people to come from their sort of um feeling of of overwhelm to to what you're saying but it's certainly not impossible and you certainly are an inspiration for it so thank you
2: Thank thank you so much, and it is hard, and I wish everyone all the best.
1: Thank you. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.